Welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jane Klein and today's program is about a condition which affects 80,000 people or that's one in every 250. How is it that so many people having this condition that we know so little about aphasia? To tell us more about it, we have Georgie Laney. She's speech pathologist and chairperson of the Australian Aphasia Association. Georgie, thanks for coming in and spending time with us. My pleasure, Jane. So what actually is aphasia? Aphasia is a devastating, invisible communication disorder. People with aphasia have difficulties understanding or using language. So people with aphasia may have difficulties understanding what people are saying. They may have difficulties speaking, reading, writing, understanding or using numbers. So aphasia does not affect intelligence, and I think that's a really important message. It affects language skills, but it does not affect intelligence. So people with aphasia are competent and intelligent people with thoughts and feelings like you and you and I. They just have trouble communicating their thoughts and feelings. So how is it that with so many people having aphasia or being affected by aphasia that the community knows so little about it? Yeah, that's quite a complex question, Jane. By the nature of the communication difficulties that people with aphasia experience, they have difficulties advocating for themselves or or speaking out. Um, aphasia is unknown to the public and to the media and an international study recently or several, a couple of years ago um, showed that only about 5% of the public have a really basic knowledge of aphasia and the media is a really important source of information so interviews like today are so important for raising public awareness and understanding of aphasia and thereby reducing the isolation felt by people with aphasia and their families. Is the term dysphasia, is that also a term that's been used to describe this condition? Absolutely. These terms can be used interchangeably, so you can talk about someone having aphasia or someone having dysphasia. No difference? No difference, largely no Mm. difference. So how does a person actually end up with aphasia? Aphasia is most commonly caused by stroke, Um, It can also be caused by other sorts of injury to the brain, for instance, traumatic brain injuries. It can also be caused by um, brain tumour. About one-third of people who have a stroke have aphasia. So it's actually quite quite common, much more common than people realise. And in fact, aphasia... You know, you talked about the statistics of 80,000 Australians having aphasia or one in 250 people. Aphasia is actually more common than Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis together. So it's actually quite prevalent, but um, unfortunately so little is known about aphasia by the community. So the messages get jumbled. Um, So people with aphasia, can they actually understand what people are saying to them? Aphasia is different for every individual. So some people will have slight difficulties understanding what others are saying, whereas others will have significant difficulties understanding. Their thoughts 
the concepts may be getting jumbled or the ideas may be getting jumbled. Sometimes with the clients with whom I work, I use the analogy of a foreign language. Um, I speak very little of any other foreign language, but if I hear a little bit of Italian... I may get the general gist of what they're talking about, the general concept, but not the specific details. And that is very often the closest we come to understanding what aphasia is like for those that live with aphasia. So how do people with aphasia actually communicate? Well, again, it varies from person to person. I think with or without a communication difficulty or communication disorder like aphasia, we all communicate in many ways. So I think the statistics say that 35, 37% of communication is speech and the rest is made up of facial expression, body language, gestures, reading, writing, listening, understanding. So people with communication difficulties with the aphasia, they will use the same skills that you and I have, but we may, but they may have them to a lesser ability than you and I. So some may have, may be able to understand general conversation, but more complex conversation get quite confused because of the complexity and the speed at which the conversation happens. Others may find that they can um, understand quite well, but really struggle to get the words out. And then there may be another person who can follow conversation but cannot read information at all. So are really restricted because they struggle to read um, uh, timetables, they struggle to read menus, they struggle to read headlines of newspapers. So each individual with aphasia is quite different and quite unique in their strengths and their difficulties. So for each individual it's different as to how limiting it is in their normal experience? Absolutely, absolutely. So people with aphasia, is this uh, an all-time, a continual experience for them or are there times when the person can understand what's being said to them, for example? Yeah, I think understanding can be affected by so many factors. First of all, um, the most basic is um, how significantly is the person's communi- or their understanding skills actually affected. But then it can also be how familiar is the topic that's being discussed or how complex is the information or even how fast is the discussion going on or how familiar is the communication partner with whom they are having the conversation um, and whether or not that person with whom they're communicating is facilitating their understanding or helping them to understand by modifying the way in which they are communicating with that person with aphasia. So it's quite different from individual to individual and I think that's a challenging question to answer because it, it fluctuates over time and fatigue and stress can be other significant factors as well. Someone who's really tired will, strug- will have more difficulties and struggle more to understand more. So the, the, if a person feels comfortable, they might in fact be able to perform in that sense better. Absolutely, yes. absolutely, yeah. Interesting. So are there cases when perhaps the understanding is affected more than the ability to communicate? Absolutely. I think 
you know, I talked about um, people with aphasia having understanding difficulties, speech difficulties, reading, writing, number difficulties, and it's not all black and white. It's not an all or nothing um, difficulty that they experience. It's degrees of grey. So someone may have major difficulties understanding what is said to them but may speak quite fluently whereas another person may have trouble getting the words out and speak very stilted or or have very few words and yet understand quite well so yeah it's not an all or nothing thing it's um, quite different from person to person can it be reversed this condition oh gosh I wish I wish it could be there is no cure it is a chronic condition Once people have aphasia, they very often have it for life. Research suggests that 60% of those people that have aphasia still have aphasia 12 months down the track. So unfortunately, it's, it's not, in so many situations, it's not reversible. However, language skills can recover over time and I think that's another really important message Jane is that all too often in in the health system people are hearing or or are being told recovery will happen in to the greatest extent in the first six to twelve months but that is a really limiting view on the situation and and I know so many people whose communication skills continue to improve years and years down the track and not only do their um, communication skills improve but their adjustment to live and acceptance to living with aphasia changes over time as well. You're listening to Wellbeing and our guest today is Georgie Laney, speech pathologist and chairperson of Australian Aphasia Association. Georgie, once a patient's diagnosed, is that where you and your fellow speech pathologists come in? Well, if an individual is in hospital, they're commonly diagnosed initially by the doctors with aphasia and very quickly referred to speech pathology. So if someone's in hospital, then the speech pathologist will very often get involved very quickly, often same day, next day, very quickly. Certainly that is the ideal situation. And if someone's in the community or someone's still at home and they're not being admitted to hospital um, with their stroke, which, as I said earlier, is the most common cause of aphasia. Um, you know, there are lots of people that don't go to hospital when they've had a smallish stroke or what they perceive to be a smallish stroke. So if they're living in the community, then they're often not diagnosed with aphasia. They, they might know that something's different about their communication and that they're struggling to find the words and that they're having trouble um, concentrating in conversation and they're getting lost in conversation and they're now really struggling to read a magazine where they used to be an avid reader. But they may not know what the actual diagnosis is. They don't have a label for it. They can describe symptoms but may not have a label. So this is where interviews like these are so important because it's about helping the public to understand what aphasia is. And And when they should seek help, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. So once you do get to work with people, how soon after an incident like stroke, for example, do you start to work with them? Oh, as soon as possible. So people can self-refer to speech pathology in the community. Um, 
some some places require a um, doctor's referral, GP's referral, but people can ring their local community health centre or they can ring their local hospital or even go to their local GP and say, I want to see a speech pathologist. There are also private speech pathologists in the um, yellow pages. Um, So um, the sooner... um, the better. You can, yeah, absolutely. Um, research in stroke shows that the sooner the be- the sooner someone has therapy, has inputs, the the better the outcome. And that's certainly the case. Um, you know, that's broadly speaking, stroke, but specifically speaking, aphasia as well. So once you do start working with them, and they're not able to communicate, uh, how do you actually make contact, make, mm-hmm. make that first contact with them? Well. Inputs in many, many different ways. I suppose firstly, um, as I mentioned earlier, communication is only 35-ish percent speech. So uh, first of all, going in and and introducing yourself to the person and looking at their um, individual strengths and weaknesses with all different aspects of communication. I talked about their understanding, their speech, their reading, their writing also reading their facial expressions, their nonverbal gestures. So it's about reading their signs and allowing them extra time to both process the information and communicate that um, responses to you. So as a speech pathologist, I might do something like simplify my language slightly or ask questions in such a way that they can answer yes or no. Um, I certainly speak at a normal volume. I think one thing that people often misinterpret is that someone with aphasia is deaf and they want to yell at them. They're not deaf at all. They're just having difficulties processing language. Um, So really important to read their signs and remember that these are competent, intelligent individuals who, just like ourselves, are experiencing... um, having normal thoughts and feelings they're just struggling to communicate what's going on for them and how they're feeling so you'll find that a lot of them really do know inside their heads what they want to say they're just not able to voice it yeah very that's not um the case for absolutely everyone but very often um they may um know what it is they're trying to say they're just struggling to find the words um other people may have the general concept of what it is they're trying to communicate, but can't hold on to the information long enough um, to make sense of it and then to speak it. So, yeah, again, everyone's different, but um, very often they do know inside what's what they want to communicate, and that can lead to, well, that can add to the frustration experienced. Now, there are people who have overcome these problems. Uh, Are they able to describe to you what it was like in the early days? Yeah, I've heard many stories. I'm very blessed as the chairperson of um, the Australian Aphasia Association. I know um, a lot of people with aphasia, and certainly I've heard many stories of people talking about in the early days you know, people were disrespectful. They didn't. They thought I was deaf. They thought I was stupid. They thought I was maybe drunk, or you know, they talked around me. They didn't talk with me. They talked at me. Um, a lot of people speak very negatively about um, recollections of early on. Um, 
But, and I remember one lady with whom I worked um, said one day, at, she was um, giving a talk at a conference and she said one day, you know, I used to sit in Georgie's office and we used to talk about travel all the time and I had no idea why we were talking about travel, but that was a that was a technique I was using to engage her in conversation and you know perceptions of what was happening early on and how things change over time uh, yeah it evolves and I think there are some wonderful stories so when when working with <clears throat> a person does a person usually respond fairly quickly or I suppose like this person not understanding what you were doing yeah I think each individual I keep going back to everyone is an individual factors that affect a response to therapy can include the severity of the aphasia certainly in the earlier stages there's enormous shock and overwhelm and distress and 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 then very often in the early stages we're dealing with someone who may or may not be ready to engage in, in traditional therapy. Um, and often families are in a really different space. They're relieved that their loved one has survived and, you know, they're desperate for their loved one to get better and are ready for them to start therapy. But the loved one with aphasia is sitting there um, completely distressed, completely shocked and just not ready to be challenged. And so... It's an interesting thing working with people with aphasia because it's, it's broader than just the individual with aphasia. Aphasia is such a family disability. So you do involve the families? Absolutely, involving the families. And, quite, you know, it's a combination. We work on education and information. We're providing support. We're providing traditional therapy. We're advocating, certainly in the hospital system, it's so often required that people misperceive that um, the individuals with aphasia are not competent in decision making and, and that is not a an accurate assumption. So as a speech pathologist we, we have a large role in advocating for these individuals to be involved in decision making around their, their health care. Um, yeah, it's looking at participation in whatever they can in conversation in the short term. We're looking at supporting them through their recovery and through their adjustment. It's it's really multifactorial so and the complex and ongoing. So the families are can be of great help. Would you involve them from the beginning? Absolutely, mm. as as much as they are willing and mm. able. Now, as far as you can say, um, on average, how long does it take before you can see positive results? Oh, gosh, how long's a piece of string, Jane? Certainly, I think one of the things is perceptions of what do you call positive results? Yes. And, and I think that's open to interpretation. Is, is a positive result someone who previously was not engaging in conversation but willing to sit and, and participate or is um, a positive result someone being able to say something today that they were not able to say a couple of days ago? Is a positive change big? Is it small? I think that depends on the expectations of the individual and the family and that's why it's so important to work with them as a cohesive group to look at what are the expectations and trying to marry expectations with actual abilities and function and um, prognosis for recovery. 
You're listening to Wellbeing and we're talking today about aphasia with Georgie Laney, speech pathologist and chairperson of Australia, the Australian Aphasia Association. So Georgie, how did you get involved with the AAA? Oh, several years, well, quite a few years ago, actually. I went to my first um, AAA, as we abbreviate the Australian Aphasia Association to. I went to my first AAA conference in, I think it was 2002, and it was probably one of the most personally and professionally humbling and um, eye-opening experiences of my life. Anyway, I thought I need to be involved in this in, in much more capacity than I currently am in my workload so I ended up we um, had a national conference we held the next one in Newcastle in 2004 and I convened that conference and um, during that process I was also invited to be deputy chair of the association and I've now taken on the chairperson's role since 2005 so just heading up to my three-year anniversary as the chair. So has the association been going for very long? Yeah, it was established in 2001. So it's a national charity. Um, It was established in Brisbane, but it it has a national presence. Mm. So we've talked about including the families in the treatment of patients with aphasia, and uh, that helps, of course, with communication. Is there anywhere that they can get support, group support, for example? Yeah, sure. Um, specific to the Hunter, we have the Hunter branch of the Australian Aphasia Association, um, which you will find on our website. I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Um, there are also local stroke support groups. There are some specific aphasia support groups out there. We, um, we, as in our national association, have a conference that we hold every couple of years. So there's different avenues for face-to-face um, support, but we also have a website, which is www.aphasia.org.au, and aphasia is spelled A-P-H-A-S-I-A. Um, so on, on our website, we have information about our national conference, we have information about the newsletters that we publish, we have information about local support groups in different areas. So that's something that you can log on to and find out information. We also have an information um, email, well, questions at aphasia.org.au and an information phone line as well. People can phone in and that information is all on the website. Do you also have things such as books and talking books to help patients and their families? Certainly do. We we have a AAA lending library, um, and once again, information's on the website. But we also... Um, we're very proud of a book that we published two years ago two years ago called The Australian Aphasia Guide, which is the first and only book of its kind in Australia. And the primary author of this book is a lady called Angela uh, Angela Behrens, who herself has aphasia. So amazing efforts from Ange to write this book about living with aphasia. And we're very excited, Jane. We're just about to um, launch the this very book, The Australian Aphasia Guide, on audio or on CD next week at our national conference. So we've, yeah, we've got the Australian Aphasia Guide and we're about to launch the guide on audio and um, we're also hoping to get some grant funding to be able to put our quarterly newsletters onto talking books as well. 
And do you find that talking books are a practical way of helping people who can no longer read? Yeah, sure. If if someone with aphasia has difficulties reading but has a particular has a relative strength in understanding heard information or spoken information, then certainly talking books are a great um, assist of great assistance to those with aphasia. Now, obviously, the website is something that's accessible all around the country. Are there many support groups around the country as well? Yeah, it it differs from place to place. We've got um, a couple in Newcastle. There's quite a few in Brisbane. There's a few in Sydney. There's some in Melbourne. But certainly go to the website. Now, you've just held a National Awareness Day for aphasia. How successful do you think that was? Yeah, we were really excited. We launched the um, first National Aphasia Awareness Day that we called Wednesday Without Words on Wednesday the 3rd of September. Um, The goal or the aim of this Awareness Day was very definitely to increase public awareness. So there was a real media push nationally, um, particularly focused in Victoria, in Melbourne and um, in the Hunter as well. So we had interviews, articles, different sorts of functions. And when when I go onto the website and look at the hits, we've certainly had an increase in website hits in this last month. So that's one indication of the success of um, Wednesday Without Words. And and um, we've also got a national conference that we're um, having running next week. We run a conference and every. That's what dates are they? The twenty Monday the twenty ninth and Tuesday the thirtieth of September, and that's up in Brisbane. We run a conference every two years, um, so that's next week in Brisbane, and we've certainly had um, a lot more um, people registering in the last week or two for this conference, and we're hoping that that's a direct result of some of the media push. So are you likely to hold another National Awareness Day? Oh, that's the plan, absolutely. Next year, same time next year is is the plan at this stage. Wednesday without words. Yeah. And the National Conference, is that always held in the same place? No, no. We um, rotated around the country. So this year we're in Brisbane. Um, We're in negotiations about where exactly we'll be in 2010. But um, two years ago it was in Canberra, two years before that Newcastle. So it's been in different places around the country. We've also had Melbourne and Adelaide so and Sydney so we'll see where it is in a couple of years. Georgie thank you so much for joining us today and I hope we've been able to shed a little more light on aphasia for our listeners. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Georgie Laney, speech pathologist and chairperson of the AAA that is the Australian Aphasia Association. I hope you've enjoyed today's program and until we meet again this is Jane Klein on behalf of the team wishing you well.